you would, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, is where we will be today. We are continuing our trek through this book expositionally. We find ourselves in chapter 9. For those of you who may be visiting, that is our normal practice that we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. And uh, we are now several months into this book and we have a few more to go. And so it's been a very exciting study, I believe, and so much God has much for us to learn here. The title of the sermon this morning is All Things to All People, and the key words for you worshipers in training for children are servant, win, and gospel. Servant, win, and gospel. We have been in the this chapter of chapter 9 for a couple of weeks now. This is our third week as we are taking this chapter apart. And we've been learning many things from the life of the Apostle Paul. And as we know that just this chapter is in the midst of the broader context of chapters 8 through 10, where Paul is dealing with uh, this church who is very confused and not showing love towards each other in the things that they do, particularly in the things that they have freedom to do. These issues that they have liberty to do or not do, there was much confusion happening in this church. And so that's what Paul is dealing with in chapter 9. And so what he has done in chapter 9, if we look at the end of chapter 8, he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That's Paul's uh, stepping up to the plate and saying, As I have just taught you about the necessity of loving your brothers and over your own rights, I'm going to show you that I'm not just here to preach to you. I'm going to show you that I live this in my life. And I will, I will be the first person to practice what I preach. So Paul makes this bold declaration at the end of chapter 8 that uh, love for others is more important than his own rights. And that's really what he's been doing in chapter 9 as he's been setting forth himself as an example of sacrifice in this area of liberty, and as we have known, we've gone through verse 14, verses 1 through 14, a couple of weeks ago, where Paul uh, was laying out his the main right that he's putting forth that he's not partaking of, he's not taking part in. And chapter nine was the right of his to receive pay for his for his ministry labors. So that's what we've seen uh, that he was proclaiming. And then in verses 15 uh, through 18, we see that he says, I have not used any of these rights. I have this right. I have the right as the other apostles, as other ministry leaders, as other pastors do to be, uh, to be taken care of, to, to make my living from the gospel. But he says, I have not made use of that, those rights. And so that's what he laid out for us last week as we went through verses 15 through 18. And the main reason why Paul is saying this is because he puts something before his rights. And what is that? It's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ was the most central and most important thing in the life of the Apostle Paul. And so now, this morning, we're going to look at verses 19 through 23, and he's really going to illustrate for them uh, the extent and depth his freedom allows him to go when he proclaims the gospel. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So I want to read verses 19 through 23, and then we'll go through them. So follow along. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. 
to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And so Paul there ends that, that section that I just read, reiterating the same thing I just said a while ago, that everything that Paul does is for the sake of the gospel. And so we're going to see that laid out here this morning in very tangible, real-life ways of things Paul actually did as he practiced what he preached. Look at verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. Notice that first phrase, for though I am free from all. With the word free, Paul now returns to the discussion on freedom that began in chapter 9, verse 1, where he laid out that passionate uh, 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 explanation of his ministry where he says, am I not free? And so he goes on to, in that long discourse, to show that, yes, he is free. He does have the freedom in many different ways to practice many different things. And so Paul is saying, laying out here in verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, nevertheless I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And so he says there that in very clear terms, why? yes, I am free. Yes, I am free to do these things that many people are partaking of, which many of you, remember the context of the people he's writing to, these are the people who were very involved in their freedoms and their rights, and they were doing them without any caution whatsoever. And so he's saying, I am free as well. Nevertheless, I have made myself a servant to all in the sense that I am not practicing some of those freedoms. And that word servant is no uncommon word to us in the Bible is literally the word bond slave, a slave, the, a menial position in, the, in, the, in a family, a person who is there to do simply what he's told to do. Uh, Paul, no doubt, is getting this from the teachings of Jesus. When he, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, he says, but G, when Jesus called his disciples and, together and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you would be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as as a ransom for many. So Christ was very countercultural. He was very against the ebb and flow of what we would think a great person would be about. He was, and he's laying these teachings out to his to his. Uh, to his disciples here when he's teaching them how they are supposed to react in his kingdom. Because they were thinking, okay, here's this Messiah. He's coming to set up his kingdom, and we're going to be set up as as his lieutenants, and we're going to be great in this kingdom. We're going to have great power, great authority. And he's he's squashing that with with these statements when he says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Servant. That's crazy. But nonetheless, Jesus says... This is what makes you great when you become a servant because that's what he was when he came. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Jesus' life was all about. His entire life was about others. That's the reason he came was because of those he needed, those whom he was seeking to save the lost, those who needed his service. 
Paul also says the same things in the, to, the book, to the church in Galatia. He says in 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I read this verse a couple of weeks ago. This is Paul's putting this concept together. Yes, you have great freedom, brothers. You were called to it. The gospel sets us free. Only we don't use this as an opportunity for the flesh. That should not be our priority. Our priority and our focus should be to love and serve one another. That's what the gospel does. And so that's what Paul is saying here. This is really his, his opening statement in this part of this scripture is, is, because everything else is going to flow out of this. He says, I am free from all. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. It's kind of, it's kind of weird. He says, yeah, I'm free, but I'm choosing not to be free. I'm going to be like I'm not free. That's the way I'm going to act when I'm around people. That I, and why does he do this? He says it right there, and this is going to be a phrase that we see throughout this text this morning, is that I might win more of them. It literally means to gain, acquire, or to get gain. It could, it could mean to win into the kingdom itself to where people are being won to Christ or being saved, or it could mean to be gained to Christ's favor and fellowship, a more intimate, closer fellowship. And so Paul is saying here, that is my focus. That's why I do this. I don't do it to score points with God that makes me more righteous. I do it because through doing this, I may be able to win more people to Christ, more of them. And so that's Paul's opening statement. That's Paul's evangelistic method was to be a slave and a servant. We hear a lot about evangelistic methods, about different types and different ways to share the gospel. And those things are good in their context. If they're used right and the gospel is correct and is center to that. But Paul wasn't worried about methods. He was worried about his character. That's the first thing he focused on was what type of an evangelist is he going to be? Not the method, not the the formula that he was going to use. It was going to be, what type of man are you, Paul? I'm a slave. I'm a servant. I'm a servant to all. That was his evangelistic method. And so what Paul is laying out here is what many theologians call, as we're going to look as we go through the rest of this text this morning, is the biblical doctrine of accommodation. Paul accommodated himself to others. Now, when we hear that word, for those of us who are conservative Christians, that usually sends chills up our spines as we hear that word accommodate. There's there's a a lot of accommodation going on out there that's not um, not what we're focused on. Because if you look at the dictionary definition of accommodation, it literally means to adaptation, adjustment of differences, or reconciliation. It could mean a process of mutual adaptation between persons or groups, usually achieved by eliminating or reducing hostility as by compromise or arbitration. That's what we think about when we hear accommodation, right? And that is true. That is, in many ways, that's how nations work out their differences. That's how uh, warring parties work out their differences, by compromise and arbitration. But that's not what we're going to be focused on. That's not the definition of biblical accommodation. I got a definition from Dr. Bob Gonzalez. He's a dean of Reformed Baptist Seminary in Greenville, South Carolina. I was listening to a set of sermons that he preached on this text. And he, this, he, has, he gives a great definition for what we're looking at this morning. So I'm going to read it. Uh, the definition he gives, and then we're going to continue to go through the text, and then we're going to come back to his definition at the end and pick it apart so that we'll better understand what he's trying to say. He says, A biblical accommodation is a self-conscious, 
and self-denying adaptation of the gospel message and the gospel messenger in biblically informed ways that removes any unnecessary obstacles that may prevent the target audience from hearing, understanding, and receiving the gospel. That's what he considers biblical accommodation, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. That's what I believe Paul was doing. And he does it here in the next few verses to three different audiences. He does it to three different audiences. And so we're going to see, first and foremost, he did it to the Jews. Look at verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So he says there, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. Well, that seems odd because isn't Paul a Jew? Wasn't Paul born a Jew? Yes, he was. He became, he's, but he says here he became a Jew. What does he mean by that? Paul was born a Jew, and as he says in Philippians, if you read his critique of his, uh, of his past life as a Jew, before he was saved, he called himself the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was very zealous for his religion. But when he writes that he became a Jew to the Jews, he is implying that becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, he is a new creation now. The old has gone, the new has come. And as Paul very clearly lays out in Galatians, he says there is neither Jew nor Greek anymore. There is only one in Christ. There is neither male nor female. There is neither Jew nor Greek. And so Paul, in being a new creation, he understands that Christ has broken down that wall of hostility that existed. And there is no longer any of these 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 things that exist. And so he does not consider himself to be a Jew. He considers himself to be a follower and child of Christ. And so in this sense, what does he mean then that he became a Jew? Because he says that he, he did that in order to win Jews. Here's again that, that, that statement that he's making. Why he's doing all these things is in order to win people. And in this particular verse, he's talking about Jews. And so why did he do this? He says to those under the law, I became as one under the law. Well, when he says that he became as a Jew and he became one as under the law, he's actually saying that he's identifying with the Jews in some of their cultural and some of their religious uh, and some of their national uh, peculiarities about them. I'll try to get that word right. That's what he's saying. He's saying to those under the law, I became as under the law. The word law in this verse and the next verse, as we're going to look at in a minute, refers to the Mosaic law, the, the, the law that was given in the Old Testament. To be precise, it, but here, it, to be precise, it refers to the civil and ceremonial parts of the Mosaic law. They do not refer to the moral law. That's where we get the key why Paul says he was able to become a Jew again. He was able to place himself back in this realm of where they were as they were trying to follow the law. And I want to, instead of trying to really explain that, I just want to take us through several portions of Scripture and, and let Paul illustrate it himself. Let's go over to the book of Acts. Chapter 18. And it will become more clearly what Paul is talking about as we look at this. Acts chapter 18, verse 18. Okay, Paul has just left Corinth, the, the church that we're talking about after he's planted, he's, 
And he returns to Antioch and it says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria he had his, he, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And so this is what is called the Nazarite vow that some people would take as they were, as they were put, putting forth uh, some service to God, and so they were, and, and, and some thanksgiving to God. They would they would go through what they called a Nazarite ritual, and part of it was that they had to 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 refrain from from any wine or any alcoholic drink or anything. But they also would would let their hair grow long. But then they would cut it at the very end. And so Paul, when he went through this, when he went over to to um, to Antioch, he took took part in this ritual with these Jews. And if we flip over to uh, chapter 21, we're going to see another example of this. And it's a little bit more lengthy, and it'll explain a little bit more why he did this. Starting in verse 17. He says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through the ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs." What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from that, from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. And so you see here Paul is taking part in this ritual, and actually at the behest of James and the other apostles as he's coming back into Jerusalem, they're hearing about him and his activities in the, in the Gentile world. He's, he's, he's preaching the gospel to these Gentiles, and he's, he's teaching them the true gospel. And so they're, they're still, even though these Jews are being saved, there still is some of that animosity existing between them and Gentiles, and there's still some confusion. There's still some growing and maturing that has to happen. And so they're hearing about Paul coming back into Jerusalem now, and they're, what's going to happen when he goes to seek an audience with them and begin to try to teach them? They're going to be standoffish. They're going to say, no, we've heard these things about you and we, we don't trust you. We're not sure what you're doing. And so James is saying, this is what we do. Take part in this ritual that has no redeeming characteristics in it. It's, it is an Old Testament ritual in the law. And we know that the law has been fulfilled in Christ. The cer- these ceremonies and all these things that took place, these sacrifices that all the Jews did in the Old Testament was pointing forward to Christ. And Christ has fulfilled all those things in His coming. And so we are no longer doing those things because they are, they are needed in order to point forward to Christ. Christ has come 
But nonetheless, let's, since these Jews have not grown and matured to the point, and some of them are still in bondage to the law, they have not been saved, in order to gain an audience with them, take part in this ritual. It's not going to matter one way or the other. And so what he did by, being, by doing this is he gained an audience. He took away the stumbling block, a potential stumbling block, and so that he would be able to gain an audience. Not because that's going to get them saved, but because that would open a door for him for an opportunity to then bring them the true gospel. And so that's what Paul is laying out here that he did here in chapter 18 and chapter 21. We see another example of this if you flip back to chapter 16, the issue of circumcision. (laughs) Chapter 16, verse 3, it says, Now Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And so Paul is just beginning his second missionary journey, and he wants to take Timothy, his young protege, with him. And he's going to be going amongst some of the Jews. And so Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. And so he wasn't a pure Jew, purebred Jew. And so these, Paul knew that that was going to be a hindrance to these Jews. They would not trust, they would not allow a Gentile to come into them and take part in their religious ceremonies. And so Paul says, because of that, Timothy, I want you to become circumcised. Even though circumcision means nothing, it's not going to save you. Nonetheless, I want you to take part in this so that you will take away that stumbling block between us and the audience that we're going to be going to. But, if we go to Galatians chapter 2, and you don't have to turn there, because, but it is a, it's several verses I want to read, but I just want you to listen very clear, clearly. Because there's another instance that involves circumcision that Paul did not take part in. It says, then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Here's another instance. Paul with, a, with another associate, Titus. Same problem. He's a Greek. Has not been circumcised. But what did, very different, very different uh, thing took place this time. He said, I did not have Titus circumcised. Why? Because in, if he would have went forward and had Titus circumcised like he did Timothy, he would have been giving in to these people who were proclaiming that circumcision led to saving faith. You had to have be circumcised in order to be made right with God. What was at stake in the issue with Titus that was not at stake with the issue with Timothy? The gospel. The gospel was at stake. Paul very vehemently opposed the Judaizers in Galatians, those who were teaching that you had to keep the law and and put on Christ as well in order to be made right with God. 
He made no bones about it. He made, he gave them no room for, for discussion. He gave them no room to say that we can find some common ground here. He opposed them everywhere. But in the time of, but, but in the, the instance with Timothy, there was no such thing happening. It was just simply an opportunity to take away a stumbling block because they were going to go into an area where there were some Jews and it could potentially be a stumbling block. And so you see, this is Paul practicing biblical accommodation. This is Paul looking at the instance, the circumstances that he's involved in, and he's making choices as it pertains to the Jewish audience. But Paul makes some disclaimers because he says, he says there to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews to those outside, to those under the law, I became one of the law, though not being myself under the law. He had to make a disclaimer because you can already hear, can you not, the people objecting. Okay, Paul, I see what you're doing. You're trying to play the fence. You're trying to play one side or the other. And so when you get around the Jews, you're, going, you're acting as if you've got to keep the law in order to be made right with God. And Paul is saying, no, 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 I am not under the law. I do not consider myself to be under the law. Paul was no longer under the law in the sense that he was trying to gain his righteousness by keeping it. But the people that he wanted to go to were. And so in, whenever, in the instances where he could, he could just accommodate their ignorance and take part in some of their ceremonies and some of their rituals, he would for the sake of gaining an audience. But if it meant compromising the gospel, he would not. And so Paul very clearly is saying here, I'm not saying that I'm under the law. I'm not compromising here. The gospel of Jesus Christ is still what I'm focused on. But on these other issues, these non-moral issues... We ha- that we have the freedom to partake in, I am going to do that for the sake of those that I am trying to reach. And so that was Paul's method around the Jews. Well, look at, let's look at the second audience, verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being myself, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Well, who are those outside the law? Well, who are the ones under the law? The Jews. Who are everybody else? The Gentiles. And so we all know that the law was given to the Jewish nation and everybody else was outside of that law. Because Paul says in Romans chapter 3, What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. But to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. It was to the Jewish nation that God chose. Everybody else was outside of that covenant. And so Paul is saying, when I, because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, that was his primary ministry focus, whenever Paul spent time with Gentiles, he did not observe the Jewish food laws or the various festivals that were required by the Jew. He, he was free. He knew that those things were no longer in place. He was set free from that by Christ. And so when he was around Gentiles and there were no Jews around, he would not do those things. He would sit down and have ham, have a ham sandwich with the with his Gentile brothers. He would partake in all of these other things. He did not have to focus on any of these special festivals that the Jews had to focus on. And so Paul had the freedom to accommodate his Gentile brothers. And no doubt when he was around them, 
He would, he would take on some of their characteristics, some their dress habits or some of the things that they partook on, partook in, which did not violate the gospel. And that's why Paul says here, his second disclaimer, he says, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. What does that mean? Well, you can already hear the objection from this side, right? Paul, when you go around the Gentiles, you're just a lawless person. You have abandoned the law. Anything goes for you when you get away from the Jews, right? Wrong. Because Paul says very clearly in Romans chapter 7, verse 22, he says, For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. What's key about that? Because the Bible says very clearly that the law of God, the law, what was the purpose of the law in Galatians? It was to hold us into as a guardian, so to speak. That was the purpose of the law until Christ came to set us free from the law, right? We're saved from the law, from the penalty of the law. And so why is, God, why is Paul saying, I delight in the law of God? The second part of it, in the inner being. Through Christ, Paul's view of the law of God has changed. He no longer seeks salvation in relation to the law, but now he wants to keep the law to show his gratitude to Christ for delivering him from the curse of the law. And that should be true of you and me. We do not take part in any of these civil or ceremonial ritualistic things that the Jews took part in. They are still in our Bible. If you go read the Old Testament, they're still there. You still read about them, but we don't partake in them because they have been fulfilled. Christ has taken care. He's removed that part of the law. He's fulfilled that part of the law. But as Christ said when he was preaching in in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he said, I did not come to set aside the law. I came to fulfill it and not one jot or one tittle will pass away. And so the moral law of God, the, the Ten Commandments in particular, reflect the very character of God, His holiness. It's called the royal law in the New Testament. And so Christ has shown us what the law is for the Christian. It is, ours, it is there for us to, to obey, but we don't obey it in the sense that we have to obey it to gain our righteousness. Because that's what made it a, a burden. That's what made it so difficult for the Jew. Was because they were trying to, reach, to, to keep that law to gain right standing with God. And it was impossible. But Paul says, I am not outside the law of God, but I am under the law of Christ. So what then is the law of Christ? Is that different than the law of God? Well, there's one other place in the New Testament where you see this phrase law of Christ. It's in Galatians 6.2. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He also says in Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what is the law of Christ? It's love. It's love. Matthew said it is, or, or Jesus said it as well. In Matthew 22, he says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so the law of Christ is the law of love. And it's not superimposed against the law of God. They go together. And so now we desire to keep the law of God. We desire to obey the law of God out of love. D.A. Carson, in his book, The Cross in Christian Ministry, says, Whatever God demands of him as a new covenant believer, a Christian, binds him. He cannot step outside those constraints. There is a rigid limit to his flexibility as he seeks to win the loss from the different cultural and religious groups. He must not do anything that is forbidden to the Christian, and he must, he must do everything mandated of the Christian. He is not free from God's law. He is under Christ's law. And so everything that Christ has taught us in the New Testament, and Christ expanded the law, the, the, the moral law of God in the New Testament, And so everything that we see that Christ taught us and His apostles taught us is our law. And we we keep those laws because we love Christ. We don't keep them in order to gain right standing with Him. He has has provided right standing with Him. And so then that ushers into us a heart of thanksgiving and love for to him, which expresses itself outward in love to others. That's why he says that the second is like the first. We love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we manifest that on earth by loving others more than we love ourselves. That's the law of Christ. And so again, Paul says, why, is, why do I do this? Why do I act? Why do I put, place myself outside the law with those who are outside the law in order to win those outside the law? Paul desires to gain an audience with the Gentiles. The third group we see in verse 22, he says, "To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some." So who are the weak? There is a little bit of disagreement over who they are. Uh, some people think that it's talking about the weak, uh, the, 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 less, the less fortunate people in life, the, the weak economically. And the reason they say that is because the, the previous two groups, Paul goes to them and accommodates himself to them in order to win them to Christ, in order to gain them, to, to gain their salvation. And so... If he's talking about the weak brother that this whole section has been talking about, then the, then, this, then the thought is, well, then there's no reason to gain them to Christ salvifically because they're already saved. And so they think that, it's called, that it could be called talking about the, the, the less fortunate. And Paul talks about that in the early parts of Corinthians. He says, not many noble, not many fortunate are called, but the least are the ones who are called. That could be an interpretation, but I think Paul is literally is really talking about the weak believers. That's what this whole section is about. Because he says there, uh, going back to 1 Corinthians, he says there in, in verse eight thirteen or chapter 8, verse 13, so Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. The person who's being stumbled over this meat is the weak brother. And that's what this whole section is about. So I think that's what Paul is literally getting to. And so it... 
I don't think it means that when he goes and he accommodates himself to the weak brethren that he's looking to gain their salvation, but he is looking to gain a relationship with them. And that is one of the definitions of that word win, to gain a closer relationship with Christ. And so Paul says, when I'm around the weak, and that could be Jew or Gentile, he says, I become weak. And we've seen this all throughout. That's, that's really what Paul's been doing this whole time, is he's been accommodating himself by setting aside his rights that the gospel has set him free to do. He has the perfect freedom to not partake in any of these Jewish festivals or any of these Jewish rites or any of these Jewish things that people do, the Jews do. He, he could say, look, I'm free from that. I'm not dealing with that. You guys need to grow up. And when you, when you, when you get a clue, I'll come and talk to you. He's not like that. He says, I'm going to set aside my freedoms and I'm going to even set aside some of my maturity, even though the sense that I am mature, he's saying, I'm not going to hold to that right because that's what my maturity in Christ has got me. He's saying, I'm going to set that aside for a time for the sake of getting an audience, gaining an audience with these people. And so he says, to the weak I became weak. That again, what is his purpose? That I might win the weak. And then he says there in the second, second part of verse 22, he says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might win, some, might, might save some. And that's probably one of the most misused verses, portions of Scripture in the New Testament. I have become all things to all people has been used to justify some of the most foolish, wrong behavior, sinful behavior that man has ever seen. No doubt. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute when we get back into that definition of accommodation. But Paul is saying here, he said, I have become all things to all people. Keep in mind that he's talking about in the realm of winning them to Christ and in the realm of, of gaining an audience with them. Roger Ellsworth in his commentary on 1 Corinthians says what he is talking about here is simply common sense in evangelism and in maintaining sound Christian relationships. It is what some call the principle of incarnation in evangelism. Christ, in order to save us, had to become one of us. And if we are to win others, we must be willing to identify with them. And I'm sure people are saying, wait a minute, that sounds like what I've just been talking about. No, it's not. And we're going to get back to that in, in our definition in a minute. But just think about it, what he says. Christ, in order to save us, had to become one of us. And if we are to win others, we must be willing to identify with them. Christ became one of us, did he not? He took on flesh and dwelt among men. He did. But what did Christ not do? He did not set aside the truth in his efforts to reach men. He did not compromise the gospel. He did cross many religious and cultural barriers. Many examples of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, He is crossing cultural and religious barriers. The fact that He was eating with tax collectors and sinners, what did the Pharisees think of that? They didn't like it, right? His disciples weren't washing themselves correctly before they ate. They didn't like that. And the fact that he sat down at the well and talked to the woman in John chapter 4 was very countercultural. 
And so Christ Himself did, did condescend Himself and accommodate Himself to men. But He did not compromise the truth to do it. And I'm afraid many people, in seeking and having the right heart to reach men, have compromised the gospel. And so Paul says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. That's literally the same word we see in Matthew one twenty one, where it says, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's what Paul, that's his desire is to see people saved. That's the reason he does this. That's the reason he goes to all these crazy things that he does in order to gain these audiences with these people is because he wants to see them saved. And how do people get saved? Through the message and the hearing of the gospel. And so Paul accommodated himself when the, when the opportunity required in order to gain that hearing for the gospel. And then he says in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. You know, we think that, the, that setting our lives apart and taking part in this hard gospel work and denying ourselves that we're going to be the losers, right? I mean, we're denying ourselves a lot of fun things. We're denying ourselves a lot of rights and privileges that we have the right to partake in. And so we're going to be the loser, right? That's fine. If that's what God demands of us, we're going to be the loser for His kingdom. That's fine. But that's not the attitude Paul had in this work. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. There was no, in Paul's mind, there was no sacrifice here. Do you understand that? He's saying there was no sacrifice for me. Yeah, I could have partaken in a lot of things I didn't partake in, but compared with the benefits of the gospel that I'm partaking in with all these people who are coming to know Christ, that pales in comparison to these rich blessings that I partake in. Do we not rejoice when we see some of our friends and family members come to know Christ? Do you, do you experience the joy of that? Imagine if you just got to experience that over and over and over again because you were just sold out for the gospel and you were everything you were doing was focused on getting the word of the gospel out and God was using you to draw people into this kingdom. Would you be sorry that you were missing out on some things? I don't think so. I think we would be so filled up in our hearts with joy over seeing people saved that we wouldn't even, we wouldn't even remember that we had lost out on some of these things. And so Paul was very different. He, well, he wasn't worried about it. And so let's, in, in just a few minutes I've got left, I want to talk a little bit more about this word accommodation. Because we need to have the right mind on it, right understanding on it, so that we don't commit errors, but also that we don't shrink back. And so that's probably one of the areas that we might be tempted is to shrink back because we're scared that we could be possibly compromising. What I'm, ta- what I'm not talking about when I talk about biblical accommodation and what Jesus did not do and what Paul did not do, he did in accommodating himself to people and gaining a, 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 an audience with them as he proclaimed the gospel to them, he was not embracing or promoting theological error. Paul did not set aside the gospel because it was offensive. He proclaimed the gospel. And he did not package it and tweak it in order to make it less offensive. 
Jesus and Paul and all the disciples, all the apostles, their teachings are filled with theological truths. And so whatever we do, wherever we go, whoever we're talking to, we do not abandon theology. Paul, in accommodating himself, did not engage in sinful behavior. And that's where I think you see this being misused a lot. Where people, in order to justify their sinful desires and their sinful behavior, will say, look, I'm just being all things to all people. I want to gain an audience with them. I want to talk to them about Jesus. But in the meantime, I'm going to wallow in the mud with them and I'm going to partake in all of their sinful habits in order to gain that relationship. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The Bible never gives us justification to sin in order to gain another person to Christ. It just doesn't do it. Accommodation also is not engaging in or promoting unwise or foolish practices. We see this. I'm sure a clown could stand up here and make this very mu- a lot more fun for you to watch. He could do a lot of tricks. He could pull things out of his hat. He could do somersaults up here on the stage. He could do a lot of things in the name of preaching the gospel that would make it very entertaining for you. But that's foolish and unwise practice. Because we don't need to package the truth of the gospel that way. We put the gospel forth in all of its truth and all of its offensiveness and we let it stand on its own. Now what is biblical accommodation? I want to go back to this definition again. He says, a self-conscious and self-denying adaptation of the gospel message and the gospel messenger in biblically informed ways that removes any unnecessary obstacles that may prevent the target audience from hearing, understanding, and receiving the gospel. Let's pick that apart a little bit. Self-conscious and self-denying. It's, a, it's something you've got to think about. It's just not something you go willy-nilly with and just say, hey, I'll just do this. It seems like it's going to work and no thought whatsoever into it. You have to think about this. You have to be focused on this. But it's also self-denying. And that's, that's what Paul's been talking about throughout this whole section. He's denying everything in his life almost. All of his rights. He's doing it in order to provide opportunities for him to be able to go and stand in front of people with the message of the gospel. And so it is very self-denying in times. But he says also here it's an adaptation of the message and the messenger in biblically informed ways. Now when I say adaptation, I don't mean that I'm changing the truth, that we need to be changing the truth. But there is a sense in in that you will change the method or delivery of that truth from time to time according to where the circumstances you find yourself in. I think that's what we see Paul doing here. In these ways that he could adapt himself, he did it in order to take away the offense. Now, I'm sure you can notice by the backdrop up here, we're not going to have a bunch of seminary students in here this week learning about the doctrine of the kingdom of God. Would you? No. You surmise from this backdrop that we're going to do vacation Bible school for children. And so in that way, we are adapting the methods and the message a little bit in order to to talk to children on their level. 
It doesn't mean I'm compromising the truth. The curriculum that we're using, the things that we're going to be doing are very rich with doctrinal truth and we're going to be learning about the parables of the kingdom of God. So these children are going to be partaking in that. But this, this, this scene here, this atmosphere would not work in a seminary because that's not what they need, right? And so we're accommodating ourselves and adapting ourselves in biblically informed ways which goes to the next part of his definition, which seeks to know its audience. I'm going, to, I'm going to deliver the message of the gospel somewhat differently in my methodology to one group like children as I will to another group like seminary students. And so that's what Paul is doing here as he lays this out. But he says here the final thing that he has and reason he does that it has as its goal the good of men and for the glory of God. That's why we do these things. That's why we put forth a lot of effort in putting on this concert in Rankin a few months ago. We were gaining an audience with people that we might not otherwise have gained an audience with and it was nothing wrong with the method in which we used. We, the, audio, the, the gospel was attached to that message. And we put it forth in a way that might not work in another, in another community. But that's okay. That's, that's biblically informed in the method of which you present the gospel. You don't compromise the gospel. You don't do it because you think you're going to help God get someone saved. God is still sovereign over who He saves. But we have to realize, and missionaries understand this very clearly, a missionary knows when he goes into another part of the world, another culture, just say the Muslim culture, he's not going to go up there and act like he's in South Georgia. He's going to learn their language. He's going to learn their culture. He's going to dress like them. He's going to eat the food that they eat. Why? Why? so that he can become a part of them in a sense that he's not going to offend them. But he doesn't pick up the Koran and start teaching from the Koran. He gains an audience with them so that he can bring the truth to them, the gospel. And so that's the razor edge that we walk in life whenever we're trying, seeking ways to reach people with the gospel. And that's what Paul is focused on in this text. John MacArthur says about this portion of Scripture, he says, Compromise is where you set aside the truth. Condescension, which is another word for accommodation, is where you set aside a liberty that you could exercise to meet a man on his own level. Paul is not a men-pleaser. Galatians 1.10, he says, I, I'm no man-pleaser. I'm not going to set aside the truth for anybody. If a man is offended by the cross, that's his problem. If a man is offended by the truth of the Word of God, that's his problem. If a man is offended by church discipline, that's his problem. But if a man is offended by some behavior that I am doing that isn't necessary, then I'll stop doing that. That's my problem. Do you see the difference? We don't compromise the truth. But we have to understand that there, there are many different cultures out there. There are many different people out there. 
And so when I'm trying to be all things to all people, I'm not embracing theological error. I'm not becoming foolish in what I do. And I'm not seeking to justify my sinful behavior. But nonetheless, in the areas that I can accommodate, in the areas that I can set aside certain rights and privileges and liberties that I enjoy in order to gain an audience with another person so that I can proclaim the gospel to them, then why would I not do that? Paul did that. That's what he's, that's what he's focused on here. His desire is to bring the gospel. And the gospel is the offense. If people are offended of that, then we should not try to repackage that to take away that offense. That's where a lot of people miss it. They see people being offended and they say, well, I've got to dress it up somehow to take away that offense. No, 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 no. The gospel is offensive. And if people are offended at the gospel, that's where they need to be until God shows them otherwise. I I can't take that away. But if they're offended at me, I can take that away. If there's something in me, something in my delivery, in my attitude that I can take away, that I can change in order to gain that audience with them, then why would I not do that? Because that's what our life's all about. We do all for the sake of the gospel, that we may share with them and its blessings, and our desire is to see people saved. God is sovereign over salvation, but He uses us He uses the foolishness of men. He uses our weaknesses as vessels to proclaim that gospel. And let that be our heart, that we are gospel-focused people and that we're not about our rights over that, that we set aside those rights if it's called upon for love for others so that they might be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the rich truths of this text. This is very confusing, Father. It's very hard to know from time to time what we should and shouldn't do. But I pray, Father, that as all of us wrestle with this text, as all of us ask the hard questions about, am I willing to set aside rights for others? Father, we must focus ourselves and know that we are not a part of this world. Father, you have delivered us from this world, and our love is not for this world. Our love is to see people converted and placed into your kingdom out of this world. And that is why we exist. Give us the heart. Give us opportunities for that. And we give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen.